explained in his own time in Matthew 24 and 25. But you see there in verse 3, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. And he gives these metaphors of a thief in the night and his travail upon a woman with child. They shall not escape. There's a suddenness here. A suddenness, regardless of whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, it will be sudden. But to the believer, it is not with a sense of what's going on. When it occurs, there is a sense of expectation. We've been looking for this, anticipating it. And when it finally occurs, we will be fully aware of what is going on. The church of Jesus Christ longs for this day, looks for this day, prays for this day, when all things will come together and there will be a, a full and final judgment dealing with all the enemies of Christ finally and fully and bringing together every child of God, think of it, every blood-bought person from the very beginning of the world, when Adam, redeemed by faith alone, putting his trust in the promise given to him, along with his wife Eve, throughout the generations, all gathered together in a full experience of what Christ has purchased for us. It will be sudden, But it really is an alarm to those that are outside of Christ. It ought to be an alarm to them. They're not expecting it, not looking for it, not praying towards it. And we made our warnings clear last Lord's Day, and we trust they were taken to heart. We also saw the separation because of it. Verse 5, you see that separation. Year all, wonderful thing to be able to say as a preacher, year all, the children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Separation due to spiritual adoption, we are children, we thought about that. And separation due to spiritual attributes, we are of the light, children of light. Light indicating what we have and what we enjoy in the Lord. And it's vital for us to understand what we have in Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here, that he informs them about what they are. He's going to move on, and we'll see it this morning. He's going to move on and make application, drive home certain truths, speak to the, the, the way the Christians should live. But before he does that, he lays the foundation, this is what you are. Now, beloved, let's just pause on that and, and think about the significance of being able to say ye are all the children of light, that this is what you are. Knowing what you are makes a difference in how you live. If someone joins the U.S. Army, as soon as they are aware they are part of the Army, it makes a difference in how they live, at least it ought. Part of the training and part of what they experience is to shape them into a certain conformity because now what they are, having signed up, now that they're part of this body, it ought to change how they live to some degree. And there are many ways in which that may be applied. Many jobs have this feeling upon the heart and the life when you, when you become a, even a teacher, you become anything. You, you take on a role and you, you become something and you become defined by a title. This is what you are. And it changes how you think, changes how you live, often will mature you, especially when there's added responsibility. It, it shapes you in a certain way. And, and the longer you're in that, the more it can be identified. It's often very easy to almost tell that someone is a nurse after 30 years of being a nurse. 
or that someone is a teacher after 30 years of being a teacher, you, you can almost tell. You're not surprised when they say, oh, I'm a teacher, if you've had some introduction to them already. There's certain characteristics that, that are upon them, and that, that their whole life has shaped them, and as soon as they became this thing, it made a difference in their life. And so it is for us when we know, and this is what Paul's laying down, he is making them aware, this is what you are. This is what Christ has made you. He has made you children, as we considered last Lord's Day. Children of light. Of light. You emanate light. This is your calling. This is what you have been made to reflect. You're not of darkness. You're of the day. You live in the revelation of the gospel. That light is enhanced by the agency of the Word of God and the Spirit of God within your life, so that you are of the day. That, that, that's how you can be described as it said here. You're of the day. Children of the day. You're walking in the light of God's Word. The Spirit of God we've spoken about is living within you, living Christ in your life, leading you to love Him and serve Him. This is not insignificant. Sometimes when we are exhorted to a certain manner of living, it is without being reminded or understanding what we are, and that can be unhelpful. Paul doesn't do that. He's going to make exhortation. He's going to apply. The final part of this letter really begins to drive home what is expected, what is desired, what he would want to see develop and grow within the body of Christ there. But he is establishing, ye are all the children of light. Take that, beloved. Wear that. Wear it. I know that our understanding of the depravity of the human nature can sometimes make us talk about ourselves in ways that we need to be very careful and cautious about. I'm a sinner. Yes, you're a sinner. Um, we may lament our sin and, 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 and feel the weight of it daily and we have our consciences pricked at the, the lack of holiness within our lives. And it may bother us and it ought. But we can speak sometimes in an unhelpful way where we almost make out that we're living as, un, as ungodly as the ungodly live. And that shouldn't be the case. Paul says, no, that's not what you are. You're, you're not of darkness. You're not of night. There's, there's a difference where, where the reality, that which Christ has given to you, you're a child of light. You're of the day. Wear that. Adorn that. This is, this is what you are. This is not something you become. This is not something you earn. This is not something you work for. This is what you are in Christ. Beloved, when you leave this place each Lord's Day, when you go into the workplace, when you enter into the world, if you enter in even to a home with unbelieving people around you, you're a child of light. You're not of the night. You're not of darkness. That has been changed, transformed. You've been delivered from darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. Just as God said in the creating of the world, let there be light, so He has said the same in your life. He came in, not by your beckoning, not because you made the first move, but He came and He said, let there be light in that soul. And there was light. And there has been light ever since. Light that enables you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and seek for Him and I trust that that is reflected in your life. So we come then, continuing on in this message, to look at the study of the day of the Lord. The study of it. We've seen the significance, the suddenness, 
the separation because of it. Now we see the study of it. I'm not sure if we'll get through all of this, but we'll see how the Lord leads and how He helps us here this morning. When you come to verses 6 and following, you can see that there is this exhortation that is laid out for every child of God. Now, we said last time that many people claim to study the day of the Lord, and what they mean by that when they say they study it is that they study the timing of it. They're always talking about the timing of it, and for some it leads to predictions. We mentioned last week Harold Camping, but this has been going on throughout history, whether it has been Irenaeus, 500 AD, or Pope Sylvester II in 1000 AD, or many occasions into the cults, Charles Russell, uh, Joseph Smith, Herbert Armstrong, even Jack Van Impe and others. I mean, they're constantly talking about the Lord's return. Sometimes it's very specific. It will be on this day of this year, of this month. They, they, they think they know exactly when it's going to be, and they, they say that, and they even move people to alter their lives because of it. Don't sow the crops this year because the Lord's going to return. This has happened. This has occurred. People have been swept up by this. Others, it's more general. People have said... It's going to be before I die. It will be in my lifetime, more generally making predictions. And again, they, 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 they tend to fall flat. At some point, someone's going to be right, perhaps. But they, they, all, so far, the history of the church, over and over again, they get it wrong. But to rightly study the day of the Lord is to prepare for it, not to predict when it will happen. And understand the difference. It is to prepare, not to predict. The word used in verse 3, sudden destruction. The word for sudden is found in one other place in the New Testament in that form in Luke 21, 34, where Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you, this is the word, unawares, come upon you sudden. And his warning then is to all, while it will certainly come with sudden destruction upon those that are not found in Christ, there's a suddenness to it that lends itself to warning to every child of God so that we have to make sure that we're not being filled with, with the, the trifling things of this life and the things that may fill our lives that have no weight and importance. In other words, we get to a point, even those of us who profess faith in Christ, we get to a point where the day of the Lord is not shaping how we presently live. That's a problem. And we'll see that. It is a problem because it's meant to influence us. It's meant to shape us. It's meant to help us, not again in the study of when it's going to be, but in the preparation. Am I ready? Am I showing that I am a ready individual living in light of the impending return of the Lord Jesus Christ? So when we come to our text, we see first of all that the day of the Lord teaches us to be watchful, to be watchful. Verse 6, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Let us not sleep as do others. Sleep. On this occasion, it is different from the form of sleep that is spoken of in chapter 4 and verse 15, where he makes mention of those that 
at the return of the Lord, it shall not prevent, uh, those that are alive shall not prevent them which are asleep. In that sense, he's speaking of those that are already dead, as it were. But this sleep is a different form of sleep. It is a picture of ignorance and indolence. The one who sleeps has no awareness of what is going on, like someone sleeping. He doesn't know what's going on. He's asleep, completely unconscious, really, of, of, of what is going on around him. And there's an indolence there. He's not actively living in light of what is going on either. He can be said to be sleeping. He's not active. The reality of what is present or what is coming is not shaping him. So, in contrast of being one that sleeps, we should not be ignorant. We should have knowledge. The Lord is returning and we should not be indolent. We should be actively living in the reality of the coming day of the Lord. And Paul, when he, when he says this, when he makes this inter- exhortation, he said, let us not sleep. He involves himself. Paul, in making this exhortation, is not just generalizing it towards people that, that may be in the church and you're, you're not sure where they stand before the Lord. He actually throws himself in here. In other words, the apostle is aware He is conscious of the fact that even he may fall into this condition. That it is possible that even one who serves the Lord may fall asleep in this way, as do others. Others that exhibit spiritual slothfulness, those that aren't living in the light of the Lord's return. It may be possible for the child of God, even the apostle himself, does not exclude himself from the reality that I may get to this point. So it comes, it comes very, very sharply to us because if Paul includes himself, there's none of us that can exclude ourselves. There's not one child of God here who can say, this doesn't apply to me. It is very easy to become conditioned in a negative way. And the question I ask myself in study of this is, am I asleep? Am I asleep? That's a question I would want you to ask yourself. Are you asleep? Are you as whoever these others are? Certainly the unregenerate reflect a spiritual death. But his concern is toward the people of God. Let us not sleep. very sobering thing to reflect upon where you are with the Lord. Something we need to do, not all the time, but certainly on occasions. And this is what Paul's instruction would do for us. A Christian may live a very energetic, vibrant Christian life and sweet daily fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And then one day finds him sleeping. I was reminded of a sermon by Dr. Paisley when I was thinking about this. When I was asking myself, when I was thinking about us in general, about whether we're sleeping or not, whether we even know it. And he said in one of his great sermons on revival, he said, the church of Jesus Christ is largely sleeping. It's like a great bedroom 
And you have all the Christians in bed and they're all sleeping. And they're all saying, please don't wake me up. I want to sleep on. That's true. It's true that the church can get to a point where that is reflective of her general condition. Where the Christian is, is just, just drifting through, nothing necessarily out of, out of place, at least externally, by what man can perceive. But spiritually, there's not the sweetness, there's not the intimacy, there's not living in light of the impending return of Jesus Christ, the awareness that He is coming, and having the sanctifying influence of that knowledge upon our lives. We're drifting. I was reminded further of the words of John Wesley when he spoke of the Methodist movement. In the midst of the blessing that they were enjoying, he said, My fear is not that our great movement, known as the Methodists, will eventually cease to exist or one day die from the earth. My fear is that our people will become content to live without the fire, the power, the excitement, and supernatural element that makes us great. That was his fear. That the movement would come to a place of contentment, contentment to be without the thing that they enjoyed initially, that set them apart in terms of what God was doing in their midst. It's a sinful sort of contentment. That contentment that, that just wants to sleep on, doesn't want to get up and face the responsibilities of the day. We've all been there. Physically, we've been there. The alarm goes off, and you just, you're, you're short a few hours sleep, and you're lethargic, and there's that lack of willingness to face the responsibilities of the day. Now, for the most part, we tend to overcome that because, well, if we don't turn up, there'll be consequences for it. So we, we get up and we go. And maybe even that can happen within the church of Jesus Christ. It's not so much that you've stopped. It's not that you have clocked out. It's not that you're no longer engaged or involved. You, you very much well be, may be involved in the work of God in various ways. But really, really, you've kind of checked out. And this is what Paul says. Let us not sleep, beloved. Let us not. Let us be aware of the danger of a sleepy indolent spirit, a carelessness about spiritual things, a lack of awareness of the Lord's return and not living with that same zeal that may have marked us in the past. And as much as I am so thankful for all that I hear, whether it be from many generations ago or recent generations and being confronted with what God has done in the past. It's a frightening thing when all of our experience and conversation of what God, of the activity of God is always in the past. I remember when, I recall that occasion, I, and it's all 
way back when. And it's not up to date. It's not now. It's, and the question is, why? Why? Is it, is it because the Lord sovereignly has withdrawn and we can just put it down to that? God's not working. God's not actively moving in our midst. And so that's the reason. And we'll just sit it out until God arrives again. Or is the contributing factor the sleepy, slothful spirit of the vast majority of professing believers that we all come under this sense of being just kind of drifting along and not this, this desire, this longing, this burden to live as children of light and of the day. Not like others who are just drifting around in and, and drunkenness and carelessness. Oh no, that's not for us. His exhortation, verse 6, look at it, is to watch. Let us watch. Let us watch and be sober. It calls us to watchfulness and sobriety. The word watch indicates vigilance, strict attention, and cautious, a cautious spirit. Uh, being aware, being very much aware of what is going on. And it's all in light of this, the, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is shaping this, influencing this, making us live in a certain fashion. And I think there was a day whenever people lived like that more than they do today. For example, the Christians in the past, and I've heard this, and I've read about this, and I, I, I'm, I can say that it has come across my own mind at times. And The thought, when they make decisions about where to go or what they're doing and so on, Christians often in the past would have thought about, if the Lord was to return, would I want him to find me here? Or would I want him to find me doing this? A watchfulness, a vigilance that, that thinks upon he's coming. And should he come, would I want him to find me here doing this with these people? And it, it, it often would cause hesitation, pause. Careful consideration. That's not wrong, you know. That's exactly what Paul is exhorting here. Watchfulness. A kind of carefulness in light of the fact the Lord is returning. This word for, that's translated here as watch is used in exhortations that relate to spiritual duties in light of the Lord's return all over the New Testament. It is often used in close connection to prayer. Though the word is different, in 1 Peter 4, 7, it's very similar in the sense where Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. When I looked at this word and I was going through the various texts in which it's found, it seems to me that the Lord made a very powerful point in relation to his disciples about this, this watchfulness. And I want you to follow with me in this because it really struck me. I'd never seen this before. And I was struck by what I think was a Lord, the Lord making a very careful point in relation to this. If you go to Matthew 24, just go there for a moment. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 42. You find this word. Watch, therefore, 
for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Quoted that last week. But we're coming to this particular word. You can see how the same word, Paul uses the same word in relation to the same subject. The Lord's return uses the word watch. You find it here by our Lord Jesus Christ. Use the word watch in relation to his return. Chapter 25, verse 13. You find it again. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Watch. Be vigilant. Watch. You don't know when he'll come. You're not sure when he will return. No one knows. So watch. Be vigilant. Live your life in light of this. Be very cautious. And then he exposes. I believe the Lord exposes them. There's much more going on in the next chapter. But chapter 26 brings us to Gethsemane. And in this scene, we find him using the same word. Matthew 26, verse 38. So chapter 24 and 25. It's the first time the Lord used that word, by the way. It's not like he's always using it. It's when he begins to deal with the return of himself, the end of all things, he begins to use this word, watch, watch, twice he says it. Watch because you don't know when he will return. And then he uses it again. Close proximity, Matthew 26, verse 38. Then he saith, then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? It struck me that the Lord gave a very important lesson as to how prone believers are to not be able to watch in the way that he exhorts. Not by being in their presence and giving the exhortation, watch, and then going away for a while and then returning. He, He went away for just a short period of time, just a short season. He said, watch, watch. Just a short time he goes away and he comes back and they're not watching. Just after he had made the exhortation in relation to his return and this, he goes away and he comes back and to me, it stood out as here's a a real life example of how how you're going to struggle to watch in relation to my return. You're going to sleep. You're going to drift into spiritual slumber It's going to be very easy for you to do that and to not watch and be vigilant in light of my return. How much more then are we prone, given the Lord has gone to glory and we're waiting now generations for His return for us to come to the conclusion that there's no need to watch. And Paul, he exhorts, He exhorts this upon the church. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch. If the Lord could go away for an hour and return and not find us watching after giving us the exhortation to watch, how much more likely is it having said what He said when He was here in in body 
And as we were waiting for his return, how easy, how easy for the church of Jesus Christ to slumber. So I ask the question again Are we sleeping? If the disciples fell asleep after an hour, failed to watch and be vigilant after an hour, you've been on the Christian life how long? Is it possible? I would, I would hesitate even to suggest, but I put it to you, it is likely that there's a slumbering spirit in your heart and in your life. In other words, we should be suspicious of ourselves. If Peter and James and John, in the presence, the physical presence of Christ, failed to watch, am I any stronger than they? Any more spiritually vigilant than they? And to be sober, he says in verse 6, watch and be sober. Someone who lives in a very deliberate, patient, and careful manner, according to the gospel, it's used again in verse 8. Let us who are of the day be sober. I think the sense of it, obviously there's a contrast with verse 7. They that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. That's not being sober. But I, I think the sobriety is in light of the gospel. I think it's by a mind shaped by the gospel. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You gird up our mind, we're sober, and again, it's in light of the Lord's return and a, and a patience, a patience in what we know is true, fundamental truths about the gospel and our knowledge of the Lord's return, it creates within us, or certainly exhorts us to not only be watchful but to be sober. Now, I, I, this is something that is not appreciated today. We, we want to make everything trite and light and frothy and acceptable to everyone's palate. And I'm not saying that the Christian should take on a glum approach to life, a sobriety that makes them miserable. I'm talking here about a sobriety because we know the gospel. I think again <laughs> of Leonard Ravenhill when he talked about people who would, who would come to him and, and say, you take things too seriously, Mr. Ravenhill. You're very serious about these things. And, and his response was, was always, I do not see the day. I don't see the Lord coming to me and saying, Leonard, you took it all too seriously. It's not going to happen like that. The Lord calls us to, to understand the weight of eternal things, to grapple with them, to live in light of them. And beloved, this whole world, the devil, the flesh, the world in which we live, is militating to just rock us into a slumber of lack of concern for eternal things. Every power that is not sourced in Christ is moving you to just be sleepy in your walk with the Lord. Everything. There are forces at work within, without, and all around just trying to just rock you into a slumber so that you do not live absolutely, totally consecrated and sold out for Christ. 
Oh, that's hard work. It's hard work being aware of it. It zaps our energy. Wake up every day and know that the devil is after me. He's after me to keep me from prayer. He's after me to keep me from the Word. He's after me to keep me from family worship. He's after me to stop me from witnessing and, and living the Christian life and living a godly life and being holy. He's after me in every way. My flesh, the Spirit may be willing, the flesh is weak as the Lord exhorted on that occasion of Gethsemane and made His point there. There's much willingness, but the flesh is so weak. There's so much we're militating against. So what is the answer, beloved? What is the answer? How? How can we be sober? How can we watch? Well, I think you go back to verse 5, first and foremost. You realize what you are. You're children of the light, children of the day. This is what you are. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the position Christ has already granted you. Don't forget what is real already. I am not of the darkness. I, I don't dwell there. I don't belong there. I don't live there. It's not where Christ has placed me. And He has given me His Spirit. And He moves within my heart. And oh, that I might respond to the sweet beckonings of the Spirit of God. It calls me to meet with the Lord. It calls me to live in this fashion in light of His return. They that sleep, sleep in the night. Five foolish virgins. They may be in the company of those that are ready, but they're not ready themselves. They that be drunken or drunken in the night. Oh, there's something appealing to the flesh, to those that live carefree and do what they want and Put it under the banner of Christian liberty. But are they sober? Or are they drunken? Drunken and all the appealing things of this world. Drunk on all the hobbies and fun things to do. And I'm, again, I'm not saying all of it is unwarranted. It's, but I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to do what Paul's doing here. I'm letting the text speak. Paul is drawing the church. He's, he's trying to draw them to live in light of the day of the Lord. He is pulling them along with himself. I am as just as prone to fall away. I'm just as prone to get into a spiritual slumber as you may be, but let us watch and be sober. This is a collective effort, an appeal to the entire church of Jesus Christ. Don't succumb to the powers, to all the things out there that put us into a slumber. Be of the light, be of the day. I'm not going to move on. I think I'll leave the rest of these verses to next week. I won't do them justice if I begin to look at them with you now. 
But the Lord's return, let's, let's just close with this thought. The Lord's return is not just a doctrine to be believed. It is a truth that changes how we live. Turn for a second just to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, verse 1. Again, note what, note what John does. John lays out, here's what we are. Verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. See, they're children of the day. Of light, the world's in darkness, doesn't understand, makes a difference. We don't grasp why we are what we are and why we live how we live. Verse 2, beloved, now are we the sons of God. This is true now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. John had the same understanding. The knowledge of the Lord's return makes a difference in how you live. It's not, let me say it again, it's not just a doctrine to be believed. I believe in the literal, physical, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say that is a wonderful thing to be able to say and to really believe it in the heart. But again, everything in the world, everything within and without, aside from the Spirit of God and the Word of God, the two agencies that are helping us, aside from that, every power militates to to, to make you to be able to say, I, I believe this, but it doesn't actually make a difference. It doesn't actually change how I view myself and my responsibilities. It doesn't change how I view the world that is dying and lost. It doesn't change how you look at the Lord's people. It doesn't change anything. I just believe it. I acknowledge it. I assent to it. But it doesn't make a fundamental difference. Beloved, that, that, that's not the point that the doctrine shapes us, doctrine changes, theology directs and enables us to live in the right fashion. And as far as I can tell from the Word of God, nothing is more motivating to right living than the knowledge that Christ is coming back. Yes. I think we have to say there is a sleepiness. I look to God and I know, I know the answer. I know it comes from Him. It needs to be sought from Him. There's no shortcut to it, you know. And I've said for years that many of our children and young people 
are struggling with the fact that there's no evidence of the power and presence of Christ in our midst. They don't know they're struggling with it. The way they struggle with it is they, they see activity somewhere else or they see something appears to be going on. It doesn't really matter that even theologically they can see problems with it, but they, they'd rather be somewhere where it feels like something's going on. And to be in a place where we talk but we don't experience the moving of God. In other words, when we don't have the real, we're very prone to go after the false. When we don't understand what the true looks like, we're susceptible to be misled by the counterfeit. So it is with many young people. I call you, beloved, today to this vigilance. As you go through the Word of God, you'll find it so often paired with prayer that you cannot really watch and be sober without praying. The greatest manifestation of watchfulness and sobriety is in prayer, seeking the Lord. Prayer, you see, is, is something that you could say you don't really have to do, or it's something that is supplemental, or it's, you, you can you look at it in a very kind of naive way. But, but to someone who is engaged constantly in communion with the Lord, that is vigilance. That is being sober because they're bringing their heart before God. They're having their, their own selves brought before God. The concerns of, of their heart brought before God. That's a kind of spiritual vigilance that sees the world through the lens of eternity. But a lack of prayer, a lack of seeking the Lord, or the kind of prayer that just drudges through a few points and doesn't lay hold on God or engage with God as Jacob did. Are you sleeping, beloved? Are we sleeping? Are the vast majority in our churches sleeping? Have we a legacy of God's work, God's doings and God's activity? It's all just a memory. God forgive us. God forgive us. Let's bow together in prayer. As you leave this place today, I want you to discern just how hard it will be for you to get alone with God. I'm warning you now, I'm just telling you now, it's going to be really hard to get alone with God. Today, tomorrow, throughout the week, really get alone with God. To Take the word that has been presented and to be moved by it, to respond to it. I'm telling you now, it's going to be really hard. Your flesh, the world, the devil, it's all against you. I'm telling you that now. 
And as we close here, let's just, all of us, cry to God for grace. Grace to make movements towards seeking the Lord in fresh ways, with fresh zeal, with fresh purpose, with fresh expectation. Lord, we'll not do it without thy grace. We simply can't. We are children of the day, children of light. We thank thee for this. Lord, let us live accordingly. We pray for grace. Please, dear God, don't leave us where we are. Don't leave us slumbering. Don't leave us just drifting along. God, give grace. We just throw ourselves upon thy grace, upon the merit of Christ, upon the blood shed, upon the knowledge of thy love for us. Lord, love us. Let us feel thy love and know thy love. Let it draw us. Draw us with swiftness and zeal to seek thy face. We need thee, Lord. We so desperately need thee. In this church, in our sister churches, across the church of Jesus Christ, in this part of the world. Disturb the sleep of death. Give much grace, we pray. Forgive us our sins. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.